0: A weekly stuff bonus podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about Doctor Who and in our ongoing mini series every month, uh, revisiting classic Doctor Who titles. And this week, we are revisiting one of the most classic Doctor Who titles. Yep. So, Sean, this is our fifth bonus podcast, mm-hmm. but we are not talking about the Fifth Doctor yet. No, we are not quite to Peter Davison because. Tom Baker was around for a
1: long, long fucking time He was around for seven years in Doctor Who So instead of just hitting a story from his second year on the show And just saying like, and eh, let's skip five years ahead and go to the fifth Doctor I felt like, no, we need, to, we need to touch base Because there are, I think there are, sort of broadly speaking, two eras of the show For the fourth Doctor with like a small addendum of the last season Which is a John Nathan Turner season But we talked about last time with The Brain of Morbius, we talked about the Philip Hinchcliffe um, produced and Robert Holmes sort of script edited era of the show, which is by myself and by a lot of Doctor Who fans considered to be one of, if not like the most fertile eras in the history of the show. And talked about sort of like the gothic horror themes and all the stuff that went on there. But, you know, Philip Hinchcliffe and Robert Holmes could not stick on forever. So after three years, um, they left. And then a man named Graham Williams took over for Philip Hinchcliffe as the producer. And the show started one of the rockier and more sort of up and down eras of the show that eventually culminated in um, Douglas Adams being the script editor for season 17. Um, Douglas Adams, obviously best known for his work on The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, who script edited for season 17 and also wrote the episode we're talking about today, City of Death, which is maybe the best, or at least certainly like in the top
0: five, top ten Doctor Who stories ever? It's number one for me. Okay. Uh, you haven't seen you want, them all yet. No, no, no. But I said for now, for me. Yes. And if if anything has annoyed me about this project, it's that, oh fuck, did I just see the peak of Doctor Who out of sequence? But no, it's so good, Sean. Um, City of Death is has skyrocketed to the top of my love of Doctor Who, mm-hmm. and... So much of that is because it's my favorite TV show written by my maybe favorite writer ever. Uh, I don't know how much I've talked about this on the podcast before, my love of Douglas Adams. But he is, I would say, favorite author, except I don't think that uh, covers it because author just implies books and he was a writer of a lot more than just books. Yeah. Uh, for instance, with The Hitchhiker's Guide, if you've only read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books and not listened to the radio series, you haven't heard Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Because the right. radio series is the definitive version of that. And it is you don't see his full genius until you get to that. And there's something about Douglas Adams's writing, his prose that it doesn't feel right just read off a page to me in your head it has to be vocalized he has such he, he has such rhythm and pace and such interesting you know syntax to the words he puts together and so tv and radio and even in some cases stage plays and things are where i think his writing shines best like when i quote unquote read the hitchhiker's guide books or something like that i actually usually listen to an audiobook because like right. you have to hear it performed and so Him working on Doctor Who is such a natural fit because that is performative and you have, you know, is there an actor more perfect to read Douglas Adams' dialogue than Tom Baker? I don't know. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of crazy. He only did the one season and he only has, you know, three stories to his name. Yeah, one of which which, was never completed. Yeah, Shada. Although this month, kind of cool, Shada is getting a, a full completed version in uh uh, in in england you can uh, import it and they've animated the missing sections like they've done for some of the wiped episodes of classic who um with tom baker and lala and everyone coming back to the voices so finally this month shada has like a a fully done version which is pretty cool and i actually ordered that so i'm excited to see it but city of death oh my god it could not be more douglas adams if it tried and apparently he wrote the whole thing in two days yeah, no, it's... Like, can it's, I read the quote about that? Sure, go ahead. It's amazing, because one of the things you'll notice is this is not credited to Douglas Adams, it's credited to David Agnew, which is a pseudonym. Long history to the City of Death story, which we might get into. Yes. But yes. essentially, it was one of these cases, which we've actually talked about these several times, where yeah. someone wrote what was probably a pretty interesting Doctor Who episode, couldn't be made for one reason or another, and the script editor had to come in and just write their own story roughly, loosely based on that, which was City of Death... Not even really that, if you look sure. at the original pitch yeah. versus what was made. Because it's like different time periods and everything. Um, but if I can find the quote here. So according to Douglas Adams, Graham Williams, the producer, took me back to his place, locked me in his study, and hosed me down with whiskey and black coffee for a few days, and there was the script. Which is such a Douglas Adams sentence. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I love also that Douglas Adams, who is who famously has the quote about... Um, I love Deadlines. I love the whooshing sound they make as they pass me by. Yeah. He was horrible with Deadlines. Worked on Doctor Who, one of the most Deadline-driven shows, yeah. for a full year. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's it's a weird... It's a really weird period in the show's history overall. So before we get in talking into the story of City of Death specifically, let's do what we've we've been doing with the series of sort of looking at that sort of... the movement of the eras and the history of the show. Um, and, and it's something of where... Like I almost feel like, in a way, picking City of Death is counter to the intent of of this, this series because. It is not representative of this era of Doctor Who, particularly. Like I think it 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 highlights the good parts about this era of Doctor Who, but this era of Doctor Who is really fucking weird. So again, um, as I was saying earlier, um, after Philip Hinchcliffe left, um, a man named Graham Williams came on, um, and Robert Holmes I think stuck around for a little bit in season fifteen, which is a pretty good season uh, overall of Doctor Who, but it is it, like you start seeing some cracks. And what one of the big things that happened is this is when the BBC starts sort of creeping in and saying uh, the show is getting too violent, it's getting too scary, this is a children's program, you can't have this, you can't have the Doctor just murder the villain with cyanide poison, <laughs> maybe that's going a step too far, I don't know. But so the BBC starts getting involved here and this is something that is going to be an ongoing thing for the rest of, of what we're going to be talking about with the uh, classic Doctor Who is that the relationship between the people creating the show and the people and the, like the production heads at BBC starts getting like rockier and rockier and rockier as things go on, and so um, Graham Williams's tenure in the show I think is partially characterized by this need to sort of kowtow to BBC and make the show more family friendly than it used to be and inject humor into it more and more and more, which is something that in City of Death works. Brilliantly, because obviously it's written by Douglas Adams, who's a brilliant humorous writer. Most of this era of Doctor Who, however, I think makes very poor use of humor when they try to inject it in. And so that's where um, I think when, like, if you look at the episodes from season 15, 16, and 17, which are the Graham Williams years, a lot of them are just purely unmemorable. Something like The Creature from the Pit, Nightmare of Eden, um, Underworld, all, all like these are episodes that, for me, I can't remember anything about like I look at those titles and I say is that a, that's a Doctor Who episode I guess it is um and that's sort of like where this this series starts going also this is where Tom Baker just sort of starts consuming the show entirely because he's so such a charismatic magnetic um, performance and he's so utterly beloved by Britain that like when you, he, you um, watch interviews with Tom Baker talking about um, his time on Doctor Who and particularly this, um, because we're talking about season 17 and then his season 18 is his last season, at that point, like, he was running the show half the time because he's had so much star power that if he did not like a line in the script, he did not have to say that line in that script, he could say whatever the fuck he wanted. Cause it he was makes sense, fucking paper, frankly, paper. yeah. Yeah, When and when you're given the sort of, some of the scripts that he was given, like, I mean, I think Tom Baker, to his credit, probably made a lot of the stories way more interesting than they otherwise would have been. Uh, One of the era. seasons
0: in here is Season 16, which yes. is
1: famously the Key to Time season. Yes.
0: I've heard you speak highly of that before. Am I wrong?
1: Um, I do. I think Season 16 is pretty good overall, but, like, it does have... It has some of the same problems of that... Actually, the, the guy who originally wrote the what would become City of Death, David Fitcher, David Fisher, wrote The Stones of Blood and The Androids of Tara, which are the two less memorable... Episodes in the the key to time, but yes. So seasons. So this is part of where what's weird about the Graham Williams era is that it's it is hard to totally pinpoint, like like to pin it down the way I think you can, like what Barry Letts brought to the show, what like Philip Hinchcliffe brought to the show. With Graham Williams, it's all over the place, and part of the reason is that also. For season 15, about half of season 15, Robert Holmes was still script editor, and then he was replaced halfway through the season with Anthony Reed. Anthony Reed was then the script editor for all of season 16, and then he was replaced with Douglas Adams. So there wasn't that sort of like pairing of like a Barry Letts and Terrence Dicks kind of thing, or a Hinchcliffe and Holmes kind of thing to bring this unified direction for the show. And I think that's where sort of like some of season 15 is really rocky, I think partially because there's no strong direction because you only have, um, you know, Holmes is there for some of these stories, script editing, and then Reed is there for some of the stories, script editing, which creates an, an uneven tone. When Reed fully takes over the show for season 16 and they do this key to time thing, which is something that I think like at some point if we keep on doing this... Um, series of podcasts. I would like to just do one on Key to Time.
0: I actually just ordered the DVD box set because yeah. it's one of two classic Who seasons that is in a complete season box set. There you go. The other being Trial of a Time Lord. Yes, which is, um. yeah, which is they're two sort of experimental seasons
1: that have a through line throughout the entire season of the show. So maybe when you get and you're like classic doctor you watch the you get to key to time. Maybe we'll just do all those. That could be fun. Because Key to Time is really interesting. I really like that season. I think there are some people that that are not as fond of it as I am, but I do think it's a really fascinating bit of the show. And then you get to season 17, which is where we are now, which is when now Douglas Adams takes over as script editor. Douglas Adams who wrote The Pirate Planet, which is the second door uh, the second story in the Key to Time uh, season so they're like, Anthony Reed left, they brought on Douglas Adams after he wrote The Pirate Planet, and the thing with Douglas Adams is he is a brilliant writer, he's maybe not the guy you want to get to be the script editor. Um,
0: He'd probably be the first to tell you that.
1: <laughs> yeah, like, like uh, cause when you say like his sort of famous quote of, I love deadlines, I love the whooshing sound they make as they pass me by, that's maybe not the dude you want to get. To be your fucking script editor. And I think there's also a certain quality to Douglas Adams' writing that, like, he was a brilliant, genius writer. But I don't know if I would categorize him as this sort of, like, very sort of, like, craftsman, worksman-like writer. You know, the kind of, like, the kind of writer you would want as a script editor. Which is someone more like Robert Holmes who, in his scripts, you can really feel he has this incredible uncanny sense of it's, like story pacing and stuff like that and like how to put together an episode of a tv show and with douglas adams it just feels like you lock him in a room for two days and he comes out with like one of the most brilliant scripts in the history of the
0: show but but, but th- and can he inject that into other people's scripts but even then let me talk on douglas adams for okay. a second because this is actually one of the most interesting things about him is you're absolutely right. He is a writer, I think, most notable for the writing itself, like the texture of it, yeah. the sound of it, the voices he puts in characters' mouths, those sorts of things. Even the most ardent fan of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in the World will not tell you that that is a beacon of, like, storytelling structure. Right. Like, the Hitchhiker's Guide books are essentially, and the radio series and stuff, are kind of a series of skits, almost. And there is not, like, a larger arc for the characters. There's barely a larger arc for the story. The radio series and the first two books, the the connection between them is that the first two books are the episodes of the radio series put on shuffle. Like, literally, he just shuffled the story around into a completely different order. And I wouldn't say one is better than the other. Like, the restaurant at the end of the world, that event, is the end of season one of the radio series. Like, it's a completely different thing. And, like, they do that before they get stranded on Earth. So if you've only read the books, he did all sorts of structures for it. The TV series is another thing. The movie, which came out after his death, but he did write the early drafts of, is another thing entirely, like he's not necessarily someone who has like these storytelling fundamentals and in most of his work doesn't need them. That's not what's important. One of the things that I think is miraculous about City of Death in the canon of Douglas Adams, it is the most sound story he ever wrote. Yeah. I think as a writer in terms of like A to B to C plotting, it weirdly has like those Robert Holmes fundamentals you're talking about, but with the Douglas Adams prose on top of it, and that's why it's an all-timer. Not just for Doctor Who I think it's a major work for Douglas Adams The writer Like I don't think you can do a full accounting of his career Without this story And now having seen it Like it's amazing for me To see that Because it is a different side of him
1: Yeah definitely But when you look at uh, Like his run as the script editor Like I'm just going to read um, the, the, The titles of the episodes from season 17 And I want you Jonathan To tell me if you can recognize Anybody ever having mentioned any of these stories Other than City of Death Destiny of the Daleks? No. No. Which is one of the weakest Dalek stories. I would maybe say is the weakest classic Doctor Who Dalek, other than maybe some of the third Doctor Ones. It's like in that era. It's not great. Um, So the City of Death, obviously, just brilliant. The Creature from the Pit? (laughs) No. Nope. Um, Nightmare of Eden? Uh, I mean, I've heard of it because I'm going through all of this... But, you know, not... And, like, I should say the creature from the... pit In the Nightmare of Eden... I have no idea what those ones are... And I fucking see them... Like, I can't remember those at all... The Horns of Naimon... This is one I can kind of remember... Because it's not very good. Okay, no. The Horns of Naimon, the the most notable thing about the Horns of Naimon is that it has a minotaur in it and sort of sets up the god complex from season six of Modern Doctor Who.
0: Interesting. That's that's your
1: one note. And then, of course, Shada, which is the the unfinished Douglas Adams episode that was unfinished because of a BBC strike. And I do want to say, I have your... uh, your be, be have your uh, opinion in check or like your expectations in check for Shada. Like it is not as good as City of Death. No, and I wouldn't right? expect it's, it. But yeah, and like, it's
0: a, it's one of the th- he only did three. I need yeah. to see them. Like I yes. need it in
1: my veins. No, like it's worth one it's, or another. Yeah. obviously. Like, and I'm really excited to see. Like, the sort of this animated version of it. Because yeah. there's so many, like,
0: different sort of cobbled-together reconstructions and whatever of Shada. It's also, I'm kind of excited, it's only the second episode of Classic Who we're getting on Blu-ray. And right. so the live-action footage, I'm just curious to see that. Because, yeah. like, City of Death, will talk about this. This is actually an episode I wish they would do a Blu-ray restoration of. it. Yeah, because so much of it is shot beautiful. on film. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, but yeah, cause the other thing that's interesting about um, City of Death is that while I really like the Pirate Planet a lot, which is the the earlier Douglas Adams one, I wouldn't say that it's like a brilliant, great uh, episode of classic Doctor Who. I would say it's like a pretty solid one that has that's very funny and has some notable scenes, but overall is like just kind of okay. And then Shada, it's hard to sort of give a full judgment on it based on like like the version of it I've seen. But even like with that, I would say it's like, again, like kind of like an okay Doctor Who story. But City of Death is just just unbelievable and like for that in this season of season 17 which is overall one of the weakest seasons in classic doctor who like certainly like to this point of like classic doctor who has been really really incredibly strong show for its entire run since 1963 up until you start getting into season 15 is kind of rocky season 16 is pretty good and season 17 is very
0: rocky but city of death is just fucking amazing and I, it's the kind of episode you look at And then you look at the history of it And it's like, yeah, I don't think this episode Could ever be assembled on purpose exactly, I don't think yeah. you would ever uh-huh. sit down and say On purpose, alright, we're going to have the Doctor And Romana, who's already a, You know, a crazy pairing In Paris, in the Louvre But there's a crazy alien in a human mask who's trying to steal the Mona Lisa. But he already has six Mona Lisas. And we're going to go back and meet Leonardo da Vinci. Except he's not going to be there. But then, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Like, you would never, like, set out to write this episode. And that's one of the beauties of of Doctor Who sometimes is things... It's such a crazy show. Things can happen. There can be happy accidents, as Bob Ross would say, you know. And... It kind of actually, to me, makes sense that this would come out of a season like that. Yeah. Almost, you know? Like, and that this is what you get when you lock Douglas Adams in a room for two days and say, right. Yeah, just, like, just douse him in coffee and just say, like, we need this script. Yeah. And it's... But it's also, like, sometimes if you have that kind of thing... Like, there are uh, other instances where this kind of thing has happened, obviously. Like, um, one I think of is uh, the third Doctor in his first season, which is an amazing, perfect season, except one of the four stories is called The Ambassadors of Death. Yeah. And I actually liked that one a lot, but it was famously, like, it has, like, it's a, it's a pseudonym episode that, like, four different writers worked on. Um, and, 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 like, all the big ones of the era, like, Malcolm Hulk and Terrence Dix and, like, all of them worked on. And I think they just got it to, like, a standstill. <laughs> And then they made it. I don't think they ever got like a fully fleshed out script for it. But you can just feel like they wrote and wrote and wrote their hearts out. And it didn't quite coalesce. But it's still, if you've never seen it, a fascinating story. This is one where I think they wrote, and wrote, they wrote their hearts out. And they got something amazing and beautiful and perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't predict those things, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Can we talk about Romana for a second? Because sure, she has yeah. an interesting history in that this is not the first Romana. No, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things. One thing I also wanted to sort of mention is
1: that because um, we've skipped over a full companion, we've skipped over Leela, and I like Leela a lot, but we just
0: like yeah, yeah. just haven't landed on her. And I like Leela a lot, except I get Leela and Romana 2 mixed up because Romana 2 is played by Lala Ward, right. and I mix it up in my head, and I hate that. But they are very distinct companions (laughs) Yeah, no, and and Leela's great
1: Um, She's, uh, like, she was there for the last Hinchcliffe season And then for season 15
0: I love the fourth Doctor's weird companions Yes,
1: he has has maybe my favorite, like, set of companions He also obviously has, like, the most of, like, any single companions Like, you know, it's not like The first Doctor has a billion companions But that's because he had to have a full TARDIS all the time But yeah, the fourth Doctor sort of moves through them But they all get, like, a solid two seasons You know, like, Sarah Jane was on for two seasons Plus the third Doctor season Leela is on for two seasons, and then Romana is on for two seasons, and and then like the last Doctor the, the last fourth Doctor season is weird for companions, and maybe we'll talk about that when we get to the fifth Doctor. Um but yeah so Leela is A Leela's weird because She's a cave woman from The future basically um the sort Of the backstory of that is that she was part Of a like colonization team That was sent to Um a faraway planet or like not Her like her ancestors were were sent to a Faraway planet and then something went wrong And instead of being able to sort of establish this Proper like thriving civilization Um all their sort of like science And technology and like cultural memory was Lost in some big accident and and so this whole culture has developed on this planet far away of humans that that are like sort of they worship this this technology and everything that kind of brought them there. But they don't remember that that's that it's their technology. They made it. They don't remember what it was. And so she's this interesting blend of like she comes from this future culture that knows some things about future technology like in a very specific way around her where she grew up. But generally speaking she has this very sort of like tribal attitude to things and she's a very aggressive companion that is straight up just tries to kill people all the time and the doctor like it's kind of running gags and the doctor constantly has to stop her from
0: stabbing or shooting poison darts into people which is a great I, ongoing thing it's been like six years since i watched uh talons of wang chiang yeah. i remember Leela very well she's a memorable fucking companion yeah
1: she's It's and it's like it's one of the great things about i think the fourth doctor is that like one of the benefits of having a doctor around for so long is people become so comfortable with him that I feel like they they felt like okay we can just go way outside the box with our companions because the third doctor companions um, are all like they're they're obviously they're very different people but they they come from the same basic general background of like you know contemporary London like British women and then the fourth doctor you know inherits Sarah Jane and she's around for a bit. And then he gets Leela who's a cavewoman from the future that
0: is trying, constantly trying to shoot like Janice darts the people's lights like, and shit. It's, it's one of the most interesting things when the fourth Doctor, It's and you never see this today, a Doctor who has literally no ties to Earth. Uh He's not with an Earth woman. I guess Leela has ties to Earth, but you know what I mean. But but yeah, she's never been on Earth before. Like The Doctor takes her to Earth for the first time she's ever been there. But it's one of my favorite things about City of Death is it's two Time Lords coming to Paris and they have a completely alien outlook on things. And it's actually something I wish the show played with more because I I understand 100% why as a writer you want the Doctor to be with a human because then it gives him a, a like an emotional tie to Earth, but at the same time, it is so fun to watch Tom Baker and Lala Ward just be aliens. Yeah, like I, I talked about this last week. That Tom Baker is a space person; he is from space. Yep, Lala Ward might be also. Yeah, she's a strange person. The other companion.
1: Before we get all into Romana and her backstory, the other companion we have to address because he's at least mentioned in City of Death, but they didn't bring him for budgetary reasons is oh, right. that um, in um, I think it would have been season 15 yeah in season 15 during the story The Invisible Enemy so we still have Leela um, as our sort of primary companion the doctor comes across um, the tin dog canine Mark I uh, the, voiced by the great James Leeson and and so we have K9, who should be familiar to anybody who knows modern Doctor Who. He was in school reunion. He was in like the with us the Sarah Jane episode, and he was in the Sarah Jane Adventures and all that stuff. They've tried to give him a spin-off
0: several times, I think. He's
1: he's had weird spin-offs and like unlike finished pilots, and like K9 is a like mascot that never was kind of thing. It, like they always tried it with him, and they never quite made it. But he is a fairly iconic piece of the show, and you know he's a. I really like K-9 in specific instances and there are a couple of specific scenes particularly with the Doctor, K-9 and Leela that I think those three characters could have some really great scenes together. Um, I'm actually Because I'm, I'm looking at the list of episodes right now I think it's the beginning of the Sun Is the one that has the Doctor playing chess With K-9 It's like a 90 second long scene But it's one of the funniest scenes in the history of Doctor Who Because K-9 and the Doctor and Leela are just a weird It's like Because the Doctor is wants to think that he's a genius But he's not really K-9 is just a fucking supercomputer And Leela is this like the cave woman that believes in mysticism, and is a very strange trio of characters to bounce off of each other, based around a game of chess. Uh, so yeah, but so K nine is around. Um, he's he he is around for season for all the key to time season, um, where he very famously in the pirate planet fights a robot pack pi- uh, a robot parrot, a pirate, pirate.
0: I am so excited to watch all the fourth doctor stuff, Sean. It's very good.
1: It gets very weird. So yes, K nine fights a robot parrot who's a pirate. Um, And then he is around for season 17. But part of the the issue with K-9 is that I liked him as a character and a presence of the show often. But... Having him on the show strain the budget in the production in specific ways because you had like this puppet and all this stuff that you needed to do, and added all these laser effects all the time whenever you had to have canine shoot shit, so they are constantly coming up with weird excuses for why Canine would not be in an episode because it would just be too expensive to like drag the whole puppet and everything and like the operators to some like like film site on set and like like go like okay we 're going like out to Wales. Oh, well, we're not going to fucking bring K-9, are we? Like, write him out of the episode. And so that was happening all the time. So in City of Death, um, we'll talk about this more when we talk about the full episode. This is the first time and one of the few times that Doctor Who ever filmed on location outside of the UK. They went to Paris and they actually filmed there. And they were very proud of being able to film there since there's a lot of scenes of the Doctor Romano running around the streets of Paris. But they couldn't bring K nine because it would have been too expensive. So instead, they just wrote him out of the episode. And there's one scene, I think, like part three, where the Doctor steps out of the TARDIS and like yells back into the empty like blue box, is like, "No, K nine, you can't come with me," or something
0: like that. And it goes on with his day. I love that moment, and it's Tom Baker can sell fucking anything. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, uh, how do we get can- just. Tom Baker can pretend he's in there and yeah. they'll buy it. It's like, okay, we'll buy it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's it's very good. Um, like
1: I like K9, but it's a weird it's just a weird stra- uh, constraint with the show. And so they didn't bring him around for City of Death. But anyways, that sets the stage for like where what we have been through with companions to get Romana who, as you alluded to, is our um first and only other time lord companion, and so for the the Romana era of the show, which is season sixteen, seventeen, and about half of season eighteen, we have two time lords in the Tardis paling around together um so the history of the Romana character is interesting because it's tied very closely to what the key to time season is is that in the the setup for the key to time is that there's this character called the White Guardian who's this like benevolent sort of godlike figure who like looks over the universe and who needs the key to time to be assembled to like bring balance to the universe or something so he summons the doctor and tells the doctor i need you to do this you're the only person who can do this blah blah blah, blah. because you're like the only time lord that's not like has doesn't have a stick up his ass and so i can get you to go out and do all this shit for me and the doctor says and this is where after Leela has left at the end of the invasion of time i think and so the doctor has been alone for a little bit He's like, well, I can't do this on my own. Like, I need an assistant. It's just like, okay. And so he, the, the White Guardian just sort of, like, pops Romana into the TARDIS, um, played by Mary Tam, who's a great actress and a great performance. And so Romana sort of serves as this foil for the Doctor. And it's really, what well, it's one of my favorite companions, because she provides this totally other perspective on the Doctor that's really sort of fundamental to how I view him as a character and of that I have this very strong foundational belief that the Doctor is not a genius Time Lord. That is something that the show wants you to believe sometimes. I think the Doctor very much wants people to believe that he's a genius. But it's like, no, he's not a genius. He's just the product of, like, a a species and educational system that is so far advanced of almost any other civilization in the universe that he's going to seem like a genius to anybody. Like, we would seem like a genius if we were time-traveled back 600 years in the past where the average person can't even fucking read or write we would seem like fucking gods, you know, like we would be like the top level of like the aristocracy based on our education level. That is like a fairly modest education by American, you know, standards for the doctor. He's, you know, graduated time Lord college. Basically he's got some sort of degree in time Lord bullshit. (laughs) He's, he's, you know, he's going to seem super smart to almost everybody because he is a product of that civilization but he's not actually like a proper genius genius and you get to see that side of him because Romana in a lot of ways is smarter than he is because she's very much like a time lord that got straight A's and like is like there's like this honor student you know graduated like mag- graduated magna cum laude sort of thing like obviously they don't use any of that terminology but that's kind of the idea of her character is this like proper time lord who is now with the doctor that knows how to do things properly and it can like do like super calculations in her head and could probably fly the TARDIS on her own better than the doctor could if she had the opportunity and all of those things and the doctor gets to seem like this madman renegade buffoon so much more because you have a proper time lord to compare him to all the time.
0: And I don't know if that would work with other incarnations of the Doctor. It works so well. I mean, I haven't seen the Mary Tam version. But I'll say opposite Lala Ward at least. I totally got that in this story where you're talking about. And so much of it is that it's Tom Baker. It's the fourth Doctor. It's the insane one, you know. And he, like, you get a lot of that in that he is doing a lot of crazy stuff in this episode. And Romana, like, the Doctor has to, like, run through time and space to figure out the plot of this Romana just figures it out yeah. in this story, which I love. There's yeah, she just sits where
1: down it. a cafe and just sort of, like, reasons it out with Duggan.
0: Yeah. No, I... It's... So, uh, Romana regenerates, right?
1: Yes. So, so, at the end of the Key to Time season, I think Mary Tam wanted to leave the show. And so, she regenerated into Lala Ward at the beginning of Destiny of the Daleks, which is a scene I'm very excited for you to see. Because it is... Of, like... It's the scene I've heard that about it. breaks Doctor Who continuity so thoroughly, so unreparably irreparably Doctor Who continuity has never really been a thing but anybody who's trying to make it a thing you just have to sit them down and show them like the first three minutes of Destiny of the Daleks where Romana regenerates by constantly coming like walking out of the room and coming back in as a different actress wearing different clothes and just does that like seven times and then eventually comes in as Lala Ward and she who was a guest star in the previous episode and so the the in-universe justification is that Romana liked the way that this princess she met in the previous episode looked so that she just decided she wanted to look like Lala
0: Ward um, I, I have heard about this scene I haven't seen it but I'll say Sean I love the idea of it so much if I were a Doctor Who showrunner in this day and age like, I don't know, I'm writing the 14th Doctor, and I get to the end, it's like, oh, how are we going to regenerate? I would just do that, yeah. and just fuck with everyone. Just, okay, let's get, like, seven big, like, Jude Law, <laughs> Michael Gambon, like, just as yeah. many, like, big... I know they both play Dumbledore, yeah. but I'm just like, big British actors and actresses, you know, Helen Mirren's going to come yeah. in, and just have, like, seven Doctors rapidly, and then, like, okay, this is good, and and they just leave, and, like... Comment section, do your thing. Yeah, it's
1: just, it's so, it's just so defies everything that is established about how fucking regeneration works, and it's pretty great. Um, So yeah, so, but anyways, the point being that Romana regenerates into Romana 2, as how she's basically referred to um, in, in the fandom. And then the other thing to sort of, like, note with that is also... Um, during the time of like Them producing and, Like filming all these episodes Tom Baker and Lala Ward Were in a romantic relationship And then shortly after She left the show They
0: were married for like Two years I think it like 16 months I actually think It's a fun history And the me researching this Started with I got about five minutes Into City of Death And I said They have a really Interesting chemistry Is this the And I listened Like yep yeah, They were married Like yeah, yeah That's a Different chemistry than other Doctors and Companions have had. Not that it's romantic on screen. No. But you can feel it. I mean, like, it's there. And it just... But it it works
1: so well for the character. It's like, it's a bit different for you, Jonathan, since you saw City of Death out of, like, context. But the sort of the arc of the character, it works so well to regenerate to someone that Tom Baker has that kind of chemistry with. Because Mary Tam's Romana and Romana 1 starts off so standoffish and kind of just, like... You know, she just wants to, like, get all the key to time stuff done with in this very efficient, like, no-nonsense manner. And the doctor's like, no, you have to, you know, you have to stop and smell the roses. Like The doctor do is this.
0: all nonsense. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> all the time, like, he has no idea what he's doing. And he's basically offended at the idea of that, like, we're just going to do this, like, land in this place, grab this, like, piece of the key to time and leave. He's like, no, like, we have to, you know, have fun, like, while we're doing this. The doctor's... Never the doctor's never landed in a place and like left within an hour. Like he lands <laughs> in a place and like has to figure out everything that has happened in the whole history of where he's landed and muck around with it immediately. Um so ramana first like starts off that they have this very combative relationship, but over the course of the key to time season, um she kind of comes around to the doctor's way of seeing things and doing things that is needed to be able to sort of like have these adventures to be able to gather all the pieces to the key to time. And so by the time she regenerates there is the sense of I like to think of Romana like develops this crush on the doctor basically there's no actual romantic relationship there I don't think the characters want a romantic relationship but that she has this like you know she can kind of crush on him for a while they're traveling together and then eventually she's going to leave but it's like this nice little fun
0: weird flirting thing and they're thing. clearly
1: friends at this yeah. point
0: like they enjoy each other's company a lot yeah like they're because the whole plot of City of Death is they're just taking a holiday in Paris yes and I love that yeah um so the other thing about Lala Ward... So they married to Tom Baker for like two years. And then just to tie this all together... Because I did not know this and it's fascinating. Yeah, it's weird. Lala Ward was then... Uh, so Douglas Adams and Lala Ward were very good friends from this period. And one of Douglas Adams' friends from this period as well... And, and lifelong friends at, from this point on was Richard Hawkins. Or Dawkins. Da- Richard Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, yeah. Richard Dawkins, yeah, Dawkins the, the biologist. famous yeah, biologist and, and atheist. And these days kind of a dick. But, yeah, Twitter dick. <laughs> Twitter dick. But um, before that... Um, And and so uh, Lala Ward was introduced to Richard Dawkins by Douglas Adams... And she and Richard Dawkins Were married for almost 30 years They very recently Got divorced Yeah like last year Yeah and so she was married To fucking Richard Dawkins For all that time And also had this Close relationship Not romantic But you know Friendly with Douglas Adams Married to Thomas So it's like All of this is like It feels like you
1: wrote A bunch of like Famous British people From like the 80's On like a slip of paper Like threw it in a hat And shook it up And like oh it's like Lala Ward was friends With Douglas Adams And she married Tom Baker And then she married Richard Dawkins Like what
0: I mean God especially For these specific years Those are really Famous people Yeah You know Um, Because before we start Talking about City of Death I also want to put it In the context of Douglas Adams Really quickly Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Radio series Is 1978 Is the first series And then he's doing Doctor Who in 1979 1980 is the Hitchhiker's Guide book And 1981 or 2 Is the TV series Uh, and then he moves to America later that decade to write the movie which would take decades to make Um, but all of this is happening at like the exact same time yeah so it and and I think even the Lala Ward stuff and all of that is interesting to me because you can tell there's just this culture all these people are caught up in in England at the time yeah which is fun to go through but you want to talk about the story
1: yes so that's that's we've we've set the stage there's so like the fucking so much happens in the fourth doctor year of the show there's so much to talk about it's really interesting but yes let's get in let's dive into the city of death let's go let's film on location in paris and shoot a lot of scenes of tom baker running around and have some fun but it's so good because let's talk about the beginning
0: of this story because i mean you have the prologue sequence which actually is one of my favorite like sets and like matte paintings and stuff i've ever seen on doctor who yeah um it's a very nice sequence and there's this beautiful fade they do where the ship blows up the jaggeroth ship blows up and it does a crossfade superimposition to these pink flowers the Doctor and Romana are looking at. And that's how we get to Paris. Love that. I think this whole story makes beautiful use of the Paris settings. It is a surreal joy to see Tom Baker in full scarf yeah. and everything. And Romana, who has a ridiculous costume She's in another like of wearing like
1: a French schoolgirl
0: outfit or yes. something. It's weird. And they are just on the French subway together... And it's great And there's all these Scenes of them Walking around Going to the Louvre All this stuff And I love it And I don't want To forget this Because sometimes We forget to talk About the music In these episodes And it's not always The most notable thing In Classic Who The score here Blew me away It's so good And this episode Calls for it Because there's lots Of these big montages Of the characters Going around Paris And the music Is really just lovely And it's It's Dudley Simpson Who we We eulogized last month Because he recently Passed away Um and boy what a chameleon because this is not like a lot of other Doctor Who music Uh, I was half expecting it to be like a guest composer or something but it's Dudley Simpson this is I mean again I have there's a lot of classic who I haven't seen of the ones I've seen this might be the best music I've heard in a classic who serial it's really good
1: yeah it, it, it feels like having the whole thing set in Paris and filmed on location in Paris like sort of Inspired something in Dudley Simpson or something because it, it, the musical quality to it is very different than most of his other scores for Doctor Who stories. Yeah, yeah
0: it works really well. I agree. Um, so where do you want to start? I um, there is I knew we were in good hands from the. It starts with them on the Eiffel Tower, right? Yes, yeah. And some of the dialogue there is so fucking good. It's them talking about, like, whether or not they're going to take the, the lift down or something. Yeah, or and fly. This, or fly. That is so funny. I and mean, then we've got a big montage. Oh, it's, it's so much fun. Um... But in this first episode, we're introduced to two significant guest stars. Should we talk about them? Yes. The so, guest characters in this episode are so yeah. good. Yeah. The the
1: cast is a fucking amazing. For this episode is like one of the things, and then and the characters are very interesting and memorable as well. Yeah. Um. So like, let's just go down sort of like the our our main players here is first of all you have our, our primary antagonist Count Scarlioni or Scaroth. Um, <laughs> who is played by Julian Glover. The great Julian Glover. Who people, I would guess, would probably best know him as the villain in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. He's the guy who picks the wrong grail and becomes old and and decays at the end. Yes. Obviously, he's in the whole movie, but that's like the very really memorable
0: part with him. Yep. But among other roles, let me just go through some of these. Um, He is Maximilian Veers, the general in The Empire Strikes Back. He is the villain of the very, very good James Bond film, For Your Eyes Only, my second favorite Roger Moore one, uh, Aristotle Christatos. He's great in that. Um, we have talked about Walter Donovan in Last Crusade. Um, he's the voice of Aragog the Spider in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Did not know that until researching this. And for modern viewers, you will know him as the right. very memorable character uh, Grandmaster Maester Pycelle from Game of Thrones, which he is amazing in and does not look or sound like himself at all. It's a very much a chameleonic kind of role. Um, Julian Glover is just, I think, one of my favorite, almost underrated villains of British screen history. Yeah. And, like, I, was, I didn't know he was in this, and he just showed him, like... That's that's Julian Glover, uh-huh. and I'm like, that's amazing. Yeah, he's he's I think one of the more sort
1: of famous actors to have like played a, a sort of I mean obviously like a major part because he's also he's in um a much older he's in the Crusades which is a first Doctor story from like the oh, first wow. or second season so he's in the, which unfortunately doesn't really exist anymore but you you can you can hear his dialogue from that episode still see production stills of him so yeah he had been on a, a much older Doctor Who as a much younger man and then he's back here in the City of Death. But yeah, he's, he's fucking awesome. He brings so such a class to the character, and, and it's a really memorable, interesting villain because he's playing this sort of like... he. It's so appropriate that he went on to be a James Bond villain because he's playing this very James Bond villain, like art thief character as the Count in this, but that also has this like other side to him of, of Skaroth, and then also we'll talk about... Um, his his different fragmentations And the version we see of him In uh, Renaissance Italy
0: Just the progression of this story If you start watching this and say Oh I know where this is going You are lying? Yeah. There is no way to know where this story is going Because totally he starts like Oh this is like a cool like James Bond style villain That's neat And then it's like Oh he's a lot more than that <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: And, and he just plays those different facets of the character very well. They ask him to do some silly things of like yep. stumbling around and communing with these different fragmented parts of himself. And like they painted up on like all these different makeup with like Egyptian makeup and like this big beard and stuff. It's, it's good. He's really fucking good. It's just like. It feels like he's committed to how silly the story is, which is what you need. And it's nice because he's an actor of a certain caliber that you could maybe assume that he he would be above some of this stuff. It's like, nope. Like, he's gonna fucking wear this stupid mask. He's gonna do all this stupid shit. He's gonna say, like, these really silly lines of, like, the Jaggeroth and all this stuff. So, yeah. The
0: Jaggeroth who I learned... Um... Uh, All the Doctor Who DVDs have some really cool Special features one of my favorite things is they have a Production subtitle track that's like a trivia Track and I learned I, I did Not watch it for the whole story because it's a Little distracting and spoilery but I Watched like five minutes of it and um, the Jaggeroth were For many drafts of this Called the Sephiroth And yeah. this episode was almost called The Curse of Sephiroth Which just makes me think of Tom Baker Interacting with Final yeah. Fantasy VII I would love for someone to To
1: take the, the ending of City of Death And just put the just One-winged angel around that song like, Sephiroth And just put yeah. that over the end Yeah, it's Yeah, it's a weird yeah, the whole, like, looking into the history of what the earlier version of this story was going to be with, like, gambling and casinos and all this stuff is
0: interesting. That's what I meant by, like, it was very rewritten. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that's Julian Glover and, and Um The other notable sort of guest character is his wife, the Countess, played by Catherine Schell, who is another great character actor. She was in the most famous thing that people probably would maybe have seen her in is she's in the return of the pink
0: panther which i think is the fourth pink panther movie that's what i know her that's the third one but third yeah, one, yeah um i that's the one where they came back after for like 10 years off and yeah i knew i knew her from something yeah. okay she's in that that's she's awesome.
1: in also i she's not like the main bond uh, lady but she's also in on her majesty's secret service yep um, as nancy a hungarian girl according to wikipedia this is a nice little extra thing but yeah so like and she's been in a bunch of tv shows and stuff like that but yeah she also is a like a really great actress that brings a certain sort of like class um and, and an air to to the role that works really well and i think her and julian glover work so well together and have such an interesting chemistry because it's a very weird relationship the count and the countess have because obviously they're supposed to be married and they they have this relationship together but also she's a normal human lady and he is not a normal human dude, he is an alien, and she doesn't know that. And she's like, sort of like, lets herself be deluded by the money and the, the, the power and the influence and all that stuff. And, and I like where her character goes over the course of the story. But then of course, the real, the real star, oh, if there is a real star, is uh, Tom Chadbun's role
0: as the fucking amazing Duggan. Duggan is one of the great one-off Doctor Who companions. Yeah. Like, it's good he doesn't get in the TARDIS at the end and go adventure with them because I don't know if he'd work outside of the bounds of this story. But for one glorious story, he is an all-timer.
1: Yeah. And he just serves this really great function of balancing the Doctor and Romana, which is the one issue of why I really love Romana as a companion. Some of the stories could run into this issue of, like, They are both way too smart sometimes, and so it is hard to... You know, when you have a really convoluted plot, like City of Death has a pretty convoluted, like, complicated thing going on here that you need to explain to someone. You need a character that needs the explaining to, and Duggan serves that role really well. And he does feel like this, like, one-off companion who serves the more traditional companion role, and then allows Romana and Doctor to be who they are. And then also, like is paired with Romana for much of the story, which I think works well because because they are... They have that one scene together in the cafe at night that is so fucking funny. And, and those two together are...
0: Those two a, together are... A great, great pair. Those two together are a great pair. But when he's with Tom Baker... Yeah. Tom Baker is so funny just shitting on Duggan. Yeah. Like and there's just so many good lines I wrote a bunch of these in my notes like when you, they first meet Duggan they're sitting at this table together and says Romana I think something funny is going on you know that man who was following us he's got a gun on my back <laughs> like this is just such a great line and then um, later on like uh, when it, it, there's this character tick where Duggan just keeps punching people and the doctor keeps shitting on him for it and has this whole speech that ends in or are you in this mainly for the thumping yeah. and that is such a Douglas Adams line and so perfect out of Tom Baker's yeah. mouth because he's this guy is just fucking everything up by hitting everybody. And Tom Baker is so annoyed by it. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's another
1: good line where where Duggan has just knocked um I think it's after he's knocked the count out in the doctor says, Are you going to knock out everybody I'm having a conversation with? Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's very yeah, Duggan is just a great character because he I mean his whole character is that he's this like private investigator who's been hired by um people in the art world to investigate these like art thefts that are happening um and, but he's so just the wrong fucking dude like for a particularly to be investigating art and i think at one point he just mentions that he he used to be a divorce uh detective that would like you know dig up dirt for people in divorce and divorce cases and so he he's just this bumbling fucking idiot that is constantly just breaking everything, punching everything in the face, and and the main use of him and like how he is ever useful in the story is just by like running into and breaking down fucking walls and doors, which they ask him to do I think at least twice, about three times over oh, the course of the story. It's
0: it's so good. And I love also that you know, he gets really ingrained into the doctor's world in these four episodes yeah you know one-off guest stars don't always see the weirdest stuff he sees the weirdest stuff you know he sees the multiple Mona Lisas he sees like some of the time tra- he sees someone being aged to death yeah. you know he gets in the TARDIS and goes back to the dawn of time and helps them jumpstart the human race like Duggan sees some shit but he's the kind of character that you can imagine he goes back to his daily life pretty easily after this
1: yeah yeah, he, he goes off But with the new Appreciation of art you Yes know, By the indeed.
0: end of the story Yeah No Duggan Duggan man Have they done like A big finish Like seven year series With Duggan yet Oh man They might have um, I'm, Yeah, am Yeah <laughs> the, Like
1: they legitimately That might be a thing that, I'm
0: joking But it so could be true i Sean's looking this I'm up. I'm looking it up. I'm looking it up. I don't think so, unfortunately. Okay. Unfortunately, I don't think so. Because they've done, like, Jago and Lightfoot. Yeah. They've even done, like, the modern Winston Churchill from season five. Yeah. Like, they, 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 they do they this whenever They they can to just yeah. be like, fuck
1: it. We can, we can write a story about this, and, and everybody seems to enjoy doing them, so why not?
0: Yeah. No, anyway. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Duggan's great. Yes, Duggan, Duggan's just amazing. So, is that it for all the... the I mean, there's a cameo. Which we'll get yeah, to. We, we'll get to the cameo when we get to the cameo.
1: Yeah, like, there. obviously, there are a couple of other ones. Like, David Graham plays Kerinsky, who's the sort of, like, simpering uh, Russian scientist guy who's working on this. He also has some really great lines of he's working on the weird machine. And he's just like,
0: oh, he can end World Hunger! Like, he plays it super broad, yeah. but I dug it. I
1: liked it. And it's just, I just like how earnest the character is. Like, for, it, it's just, it's more that he maintains that for just too long of, like, you yeah. should have realized by this point you're not fucking making chickens, dude. Like that's not what you're doing with your magic fucking time shell. That's not you're not like accelerating the development of chickens.
0: Yeah. This is something else going on. No, it's it's fun. So, talking about the episodes themselves. Yeah. I think this is another one and we've talked about this with certain stories so far where every single episode is great. And particularly, this is rare even for great Doctor Who episodes where a lot of great serials, they still, by design, kind of blend together in my head. Like, what was episode one? What was episode three or something? This one, like one, two, three, and four are pretty distinct in terms of they all kind of have a beginning, middle, climax, if not an end. And I think each one has its own sort of flavor. Like, you know, episode one is where we get introduced to everything and some crazy stuff happens by the end of that. And it's not, and the cliffhanger there is pulling off the mask, seeing yeah. the alien dude. Episode two climaxes them with discovering the six Mona Lisas and us being like, what the fuck is happening? That's not even the No, the cliffhanger there is yeah. he goes back to Leonardo DiCaprio yeah. and meets the. Yes, he goes back to Leonardo DiCaprio. What did I, did I say? Leonardo, that's not what I meant. <laughs> But I would enjoy. We would have had to go forward to Leonardo DiCaprio because this took place in '79. That's true. I would enjoy Leonardo DiCaprio on Doctor (laughs) Who. Sure, fuck yeah, they can get him. No, uh, where we go back and to Leonardo da Vinci's time, and we get the reveal about the split time personalities. And episode three moves on with like the theft of the Mona Lisa, and then episode four is just nuts and wonderful. But like uh, the Damons is kind of similar in terms of ones we've talked about, where it's just like there's a real distinct flavor to each episode, which I like.
1: Yeah definitely So yeah let's kind of like Go through them in a bit more detail So part one is that sort of like Intro episode um, that That is It makes them probably the most use of Filming on location in Paris And there's a lot of stuff at the beginning of The Doctor Romana and, and it is something of I love seeing Tom Baker In his fucking ridiculous Doctor Who outfit Just like crossing the street And, and, and sort of like walking in front
0: of All these sort of Paris You know architectural icons And stuff like that I didn't even realize, also, until I saw this one because he's like he's they're on location. The wind is sometimes billowing his costume under like the scarf and the big coat and all that. He's just got a normal like buttoned up shirt on. Yeah. It's like it's a very normal outfit underneath everything. Yeah, little thing. I just hadn't seen it before. <laughs> yeah,
1: it, it, this is a really good version of his costume. This like I like. I really like his his outer coat and the, yeah. the scarf as always is amazing. And then Romana has her weird French girl, school schoolgirl outfit. Like she has very interesting different outfits all the time, particularly as Romana 2. Um, but yes, yeah, so like
0: it's her hat in this episode is always one of those like.
1: The fuck is that hat?
0: It's like I just, stuck I, to the back of her head. I lo- I know I already mentioned this. I just love them on the subway because if you saw those two people dressed like that on the subway, you'd say they're aliens. Yeah, they are aliens. We okay, we've made first contact. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So
1: and so then you get the scene um, at the Mona Lisa or at the Louvre of, of the doctor looking at the Mona Lisa. Um, and actually, a little bit before that, you get some of the stuff of uh, because I think one of the things to touch on with this story that's important is that it's not like the the most sort of like prominent thematic element to any Doctor Who story ever but it does have I think it's one of the things that's like non-Adamsian or whatever of it Douglas Adamsy of it is that it does have this sort of like core thematic thing that evolves over the course of the story that it ultimately like concludes with which is it it is basically about art in a lot of ways and like the the value of human art as a product of human culture and that um, very early on in part one um the doctor romana i think is when they're sitting at that cafe and the guy sort of sketches romana <laughs> as a broken clock or whatever which uh, leads to the line um for a portrait of a time lady that's not a bad likeness yeah it's it, it, so yeah but they're they're sitting and they're talking about um art and and uh she says oh this isn't that great of a likeness and like why don't they just like have machine art like we oh i love that back conversation in and yeah and, and the doctor's like what the fuck are you talking about because um, I, I, I actually I have the full script or the a transcript of the episode here because the dialogue's so good.
0: I want to be able to To quote it when I can find it But I'm not sure if I can Find specifically that You look for it I wanted to say something While you're looking for that Is that um, you have that scene And you also have the scene Where they go to the Louvre And like the doctor's Trying to convince her No the Louvre is one of The great art museums In the universe And she mentions All these other ones Very much feeling like Kind of a modern Who thing Where his love of humanity Kind of shines through And like you know Tom Baker as we said Very alien doctor Most of his stories Are set in space But I like that he has That same thing a lot Of the doctors do Of like deep down He really loves the human and like they're they are his kind of home away from home and just little you know you could see Matt Smith or David Tennant giving some of those same lines of dialogue in a modern who episode and there's just little moments like that where that shines through and I liked that a lot
1: yeah I'm I'm still haven't quite found the line yet but one of the lines uh, one of the exchanges I really like in this episode that sort of pertains to this stuff is when they're outside the Louvre um, for the first time And the Doctor goes There we are The Louvre One of the greatest art galleries In the whole galaxy And Monda says Nonsense What about the Academia Stellaris On Series 5 What Oh no 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 Or the Salern Pinaconeth A- A- Canathica or whatever at Strickian Oh no 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 or the Braxiano collection No 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 no! this is the gallery The only gallery in the known universe With a picture like the Mona Lisa And then they do this this cut immediately to the Mona Lisa Which is one of the nice little directorial yep. Flourishes that's, that adds a little Extra element because this is also a very well directed Episode oh really well directed yeah it's a Classic Doctor Who and yeah Then they have a whole conversation about the Mona Lisa um, And Romana points out that she doesn't Have any eyebrows <laughs> What? I never noticed that before. It's very
0: funny. Yeah. Maya, uh, while I was watching this, my brother walked into the room and said, That's not the Mona Lisa. And I'm like, I kinda of the point, but yes, yeah. that's, they did not get exact replicas for this episode. No,
1: yeah, they would did not let them actually film in the Louvre and film the actual no. Mona Lisa, unfortunately. I don't think I don't think Doctor Who had you know, was pretty well known at the time. I don't think it was quite that well known.
0: <laughs> Doctor Who could maybe pull that off today. I don't know if it could have maybe. I don't yeah. know but definitely not back then.
1: <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so th- and it is just a a sort of continuing thing throughout um the story if they keep on touching on this idea of like the value of art and what it's worth and that Romana has this very like eh, like it's just it's just art like it just like as if it's a good likeness or whatever and people say that it's good that's fine and the the doctor is sort of our anchor for this like no like art is valuable for its own sake and for like the achievement that it is and and the quality that it is and then we'll get to that when we get to the end of the story but then, a very
0: doctor character trait
1: yes but but i like that it does it keeps on coming back to this idea that i think is also tied into the um count scarleone and scout sort of ultimately at the end of the episode sort of on the verge of erasing all of human history for this very functionalist purpose, whereas, like, no, you can't just, you can't erase all this art. Like, this art and culture has all this value that you're just ignoring for this, like, very sort of functional thing that you're pursuing, and you're you're not, they're blind to the value of everything that you're
0: sort of, like, you know, um, stepping upon to get where you're going. So the rest of episode one is we get to meet Duggan yeah. and all of that. But then it turns out there are... there's like I love it in the early going when you don't know what's going on. You think Duggan might be the bad guy. But then you also have another group of like armed security guides chasing, guards chasing the characters. And so it becomes Duggan and the Doctor and Romana fall in together by circumstance. Which is a very good Doctor Who kind of trope that happens. Yeah. You have Count Scarleone doing evil shit. Um, but they, I don't think they meet him by the end of this first episode. Do they? Or do they get um, into his sitting I, room? Th- I think the end of the
1: episode is right when they're thrown into the sitting room basically or like they're okay. they're about
0: to I think that's they've
1: been captured by yeah. the thugs and are being taken to the sitting room. But yeah, but then we we cut to Scarleone, like like getting alone in his own room and then ripping off his face to mm-hmm. reveal the the scaroth uh, of the jagroth underneath.
0: Cuz I think the beginning of episode 2 Moving on to that one. Yeah. Is where we get the great fucking scene where the Doctor and everyone are taken into the sitting room and the Doctor just takes over the situation. Yes. Which leads to one of my favorite lines where the Doctor is thrown into the room and he says, I say, what a wonderful butler. He's so oh, violent.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the the whole... It's one of my favorite scenes uh, for Tom Baker um, just in its entirety is this, this the beginning of part two where, as you say, the Doctor, Romana, and Duggan are all thrown into the sort of the sitting room there's this really nice little set where the Countess is and then eventually Scarleone comes in and that's when they meet Scarleone for the first time but it is where the Doctor is sort of like He's thrown in He says What a wonderful butler He's so violent Hello I'm called the doctor And yeah And he sort of Takes control of the room He tells Romana You sit here Duggan You can sit here I'll sit here And and as you say like He's acting like A complete idiot And, and, and the Countess And then eventually Scarleone Remarked about How much of an idiot he is like They have a good line Of the, the Countess When Scarleone comes in. the Countess Says to him something of, To the effect of I don't think he's quite The idiot he appears It's like Well nobody could be Quite the idiot
0: He appears to be um, no, it's a great exchange. Julian Glover has some great lines against the yeah. doctor cuz he's not really buying the doctor's bullshit. Even though the way Tom Baker plays moments like this, it like it's kind of like what we talked about the Patrick Troughton thing of sometimes Patrick Troughton the second doctor would kind of play around the edges yeah. and pretend he's dumber than he is to like get people to do what he wants. I think Tom Baker's just having a good time. I think the fourth doctor's just having fun. Like yeah. I think the fourth doctor if he got shot in that scene and had to regenerate Whatever I don't think he's really thinking about that Yeah he's,
1: he's just sort of clowning around But he is picking up useful bits of information About like yes. the bracelet that he's stolen And all this stuff It has another one of What m- might be if I had to pin down Like the best single line of dialogue To define Tom Baker's performance of the Doctor Like, like specifically how he delivers it It's when he's talking to the Countess And he says well you're a beautiful woman Probably <laughs> and, and there's something about how he does that And, and you get this this switch that flips, of that you realize that he's been, he, it is something that I think. One of the reasons why I like um, with the 12th Doctor They do that stuff every now and again Where he doesn't actually really understand Human values of beauty because he's from a totally different Culture and species and all this stuff And so he has to make assumptions about Whether or not someone is pretty
0: or ugly Or old or young because he just can't engage with that Definitely saw echoes of Peter Capaldi there Um, I mentioned this last month That there's just... uh, Peter Capaldi clearly took so much From Tom Baker And hey, if you're going to take, take from the best But like, the other one There's a moment in the... um, uh, in the Leonardo da Vinci set Where he like picks up this piece of wood Kind of smells it and puts it back down it Like it was eerie How much that made me think of Peter Capaldi Doing the exact same yeah. motion Like eerie Like one of those moments where you're like Yes these are different actors In different eras You know different writers, directors Different film stocks All of yeah. that But this is the same character This is the doctor You yeah. know I love when you get those moments of Internal continuity Backwards or forwards yeah, yeah.
1: so then um, the, I think what happens next is uh, The Doctor the, uh, Scarleone locks the Doctor Romana And Duggan up um, Which is, you know, it's Doctor Who They've got yeah. them captured and locked up at some point But I do like the, uh, the episode's a bit self-conscious of it Because it's the Doctor specifically frames it as it's his plan, is that he's going to get captured, because once he's captured, because I think Duggan says, like, oh, we could have, we had like two or three opportunities, we could have totally escaped. It's like, no, Duggan, like, the safest place, like, what we need to do is that we need to have them think that we're captured, and we're safe, and that's when we can escape. Yeah. Um, this is also where um, we get, I think, for the first time in this uh, this the series of podcasts we're doing, the Sonic Screwdriver has come out.
0: And it works on wood. It, they lied to me. Modern Who is a fucking den of lies. The sonic screwdriver works on wood, and all of this redefine or like uh, adds fuel to the fire of my theory that the Doctor just lies all the fucking time. He lies about his age. He lies about his own abilities. And every time he's ever said the sonic screwdriver doesn't work on wood, he is full of shit, and he just wants to see what happens next. That is my theory, and I'm sticking to it. Yeah. Because it totally worked on wood here. It, it's something of where I've always known that it actually is like in classic
1: Doctor Who, there's never been that restriction. Like, I knew that that's always a thing. But it does, like, especially because I'm also, like, nearing the end of my, like, modern Doctor Who rewatch. It fucking it happens so much because they use the Sonic so much, and particularly the David Taylor Tidd- and Matt Smith use it all the fucking time, that they have to do this thing with the fucking wood to do something sometimes because the. the it, the sonic screwdriver so outstripped its usefulness as a fucking plot device at some point here the sonic screwdriver is used for its proper fucking function of just like we we can't like dedicate two pages of script to the doctor like lock picking this thing or whatever like we can just and then it's out like that's that's what it's used for it's used like this one time i think like like romana uses her like sonic screwdriver looking thing at one later point in the episode to similarly unlock a door to get into the cafe and that's it Like, that's all it needs to be. They're not waving it around all the place. It's just a, like, little tiny plot convenience that is structured into the show to, like, make it so that you can move from point A to point B, like, much more smoothly
0: without a unique justification every single episode. It is not a magic fucking wand. No, it's it's completely a magic wand in Modern Who. And, again, (laughs) I'm just gonna stick to my theory that the Doctor is making it up as he goes along. Yeah. Yeah. It's... I would love if... Okay, my choice one is that in the 13th Doctor's first episode The Sonic breaks and we never see it again My second choice would be in the first episode She and her companions get locked behind a wooden door And she gets through it with the Sonic And we never mention that that was a restriction And the Doctor has just now decided I'm not playing around with that anymore yeah. That would make me laugh Sure, yeah
1: It's Anyway It's ridiculous This is also uh, one of the things I like about this sequence Is Romana gets a good moment mm-hmm. where she deduces You know, it's, it's one of those things that highlights how like... You know capable she is as a companion is she notices the proportions of like the staircase in the wall that they're behind are don't match up and so there must be a, a hidden room um, and so that's where that eventually because because all throughout this we're also getting stuff with uh, Dr. Kerensky and Scarleone and sort of like you know building up all the stuff about this weird machine that they have built that is sort of fracturing time in small ways and causing these little time loops and um, Kerensky you know is is makes takes this egg and, and has it hatch into a chicken in this little like time thing and then the doctor's able to reverse it
0: episode two is so good because yeah. i was after episode one i thought i had a pretty good handle on where the story might be going and then episode two you get the time thing they're doing like advances time rapidly and i'm like what are they going to use that for and then you have six mona lisas hidden behind the wall and i was just like i remember like i edged forward on my seat like what like what's going to happen with this and then you get the revelation of the doctor going back in time to da vinci and you have the second uh julian glover yeah and all of that just like there's so many things that by the end of episode two i was legitimately on the edge of my seat like i don't know how they're going to tie this all together but i am so on board for it yeah it's just it is it is an absurd episode of
1: doctor who like like specifically part two it's is just so fucking packed with stuff, yeah. Because you have all the stuff. Of the, the it's, it's a really great reveal when they break down that that wall and then they open up each of these like six cases and find a Mona Lisa behind all six of them. It's just yep. it's a good shot. It like a, provides the appropriate amount of like mystery of like, you know. Obviously, I've seen this several times at this point, so I know the whole plot. But it, it still has, like, lands really effectively of, like, what the fuck is going on? Why does someone have... Why is someone who's trying to steal the Mona Lisa already have six perfect Mona Lisas, right? Oh, it's so great. Um, and then we get to episode
0: three. Yeah. You want to move on to that one?
1: Well, like, just... I want to just touch specifically on, um, I think, the reveal at the end of part two of, like, the the cliffhanger of Julian Glover coming out in uh, Renaissance Italy and saying... of uh, I think that is exactly the question I ought to be asking you, Doctor, and then and then goes into credits is maybe my favorite cliffhanger in classic Doctor Who. It just has so much power and momentum behind it because part two has been so well paced and the mystery is so interesting and, and specifically it's the fact that he knows who the Doctor is is particularly like dramatic and, and like, what the fuck? Because it's not just like oh, there's a guy who looks like him, or he has an ancestor, or he's an alien that is like lives for a thousand years. Like we've seen that kind of stuff in Doctor Who before. Yeah. Um. But and and specifically also like remember, classic Doctor Who did not play with time travel stuff almost ever. As a I was really to like,
0: surprised to see the Doctor jump into the TARDIS middle of a story that never happens yeah. in classic Who.
1: And specifically, like then have like you know this other character appear that is the julian glover character again who already knows who the doctor is and we'll find out that you know it's because he's this splintered consciousness that's these like 12 or whatever different versions of the same person splintered throughout human history that have like a psychic connection with each other across time but at this point we don't quite know like is, did he travel back in time too like how does he know because again it's not just that he's like a thousand years old it's nothing like that it has to be that he has the specific information about who the doctor is and this is not Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who This is not like every other episode You do something weird of like traveling back along your own time stream And blah blah, blah 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 Timey-wimey Timey-wimey was so not a thing yet There's I could probably count on two hands The number of Doctor Who episodes That specifically played with time As a narrative device in the plot And this is the most effective of them
0: yeah, it's it's and and I think because like even if you haven't seen all of classic Who, if you've seen enough, you know that that's just not part of the narrative tapestry. Yeah, when you see it happen here, it really does have impact. And it's like again, like if I were writing Doctor Who in the modern era, I and I love how Stephen Moffat plays with time travel. Generally, he's very good at it, and it's one of his like you know trademarks obviously but I think I would rein that in a lot because you know if you're going to use it sometimes you want to hold off on it for seasons at a time so that it'll have impact next time you bring it back you know and it has impact here because it is a huge surprise and it's just this whole serial pulls you through where you just don't know where the hell this story is going but not in a sense of like some classic who episodes are just messy and like you don't know where it's going because the story doesn't know where it's going you know yeah um But this isn't like that Like clearly they know Where they're going We're just You know It's being pieced out for us As it's pieced out for the Doctor Who is also very confused Like Tom Baker Like transitioning to episode 3 the whole opening sequence of Episode Three, where he's being interrogated and has fucking thumb screws yeah. on, which is a great image of you know Tom Baker with the scarf and thumb screws, and he's just trying to piece this crazy mystery together. Oh, it's sub- it's sublime. It's great.
1: Yeah, and, and it's also where we get some stuff with um I think modern the modern Scarleone and the the Countess, and we're starting to sort of build up the mystery between them two, and like the Countess is starting to realize that the count's not all great because um because yeah because what happens is uh they have this weird like mind meld all 12 of them across history and he's in the in julian Glover is in this bizarre daze and stumbling around and and mumbling about like jagroth and Scarroth and all this kind of stuff and the countess has started sort of getting a hint of that there's something else going on here but then also part three is where we get um the them stealing the Mona Lisa yeah. which is a great like little sort of heist sequency thing that happens of I love the bracelet is this thing that has like taken a 3d image or something of the room that they can practice the theft on I love that scene yeah. And so they just go through the whole process of cutting open the glass and then using this thing to um, change the, the refraction index of the air to bend the light beams, which I appreciated that, like, that's all actual science stuff. Like, that's they didn't just say, like, we reverse the polarity of the neutron flow. It's like, no, light, like, refraction index, that's a
0: fucking thing. We do get a reverse the polarity later in this episode, yes. which put a smile on my face. But, yes, that was great. It's actually a lot of the high stuff in here definitely felt like Pink Panther stuff to me. Like, we, we yeah. heard that with, uh, or we... We mentioned that one of the actresses was in one of the Pink Panther movies but like early like the original two like Pink Panther and Shot in the Dark where it's not just Clouseau it's there's other characters who are like professional heist people and it's like this high class heist world I love that kind of thing and you get that here and it's just it's it's very much of that era and I like it
1: yes. And so then the other thing that happens is in part three, um, Romana and Duggan, because, it's because the what happened was that, right, the Doctor and Romana and Duggan split up, the Doctor went to the past. Romana and Duggan have to go to the Louvre, and so they get there after the Mona Lisa has been stolen, and there's, and, and, uh, there's just this great moment where then Duggan walks in and he's like, what the hell's going on? And he sticks his hand in the lasers because the Mona Lisa isn't there and sets off the alarm. That's great. <laughs> and then they, uh, I have the lines here. They say, I'll "Split up. We'll meet back at the cafe." But how do you say? we get out. See that window? Yes. And then Doug just runs, and you hear like like the sound of breaking glass as you you know. Unfortunately, they didn't have like the budget to actually have a stuntman jump through a. No, window. no, no.
0: It's funnier that way. Sure. Yes. Like I, yeah. I, you could do it with the with more money. I guess it is funnier to have him run off screen and have the sound effect. Like that is that is a. Uh, Douglas Adams' radio writer, uh, like, element there of like, it's funnier when you yeah. imagine it, and that is a great, like, radio skit kind of moment. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. love it. That that one's great. Yeah. Then, like,
1: sort of sticking with Romana and Duggan, I just want to talk about what I think is my favorite, like, the funniest scene to me in the whole story is after then they've broken out and they've met back up at the cafe at night, and Romana gets inside, and then Duggan and Romana have this little exchange. I'm just going to read the dialogue because it's so fucking funny. I thought these places were meant to be open all night. You should go into partnership with a glazier, this is Romana speaking. You'd have a truly symbiotic working relationship. What? I'm just pointing out that you break a lot of glass. You can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. And as he says that, he breaks the top of a bottle of wine on a table and just pours the glass, which is the funniest fucking thing that has ever been filmed like just the nonchalantness as they're talking about how he breaks glass a lot and he just for no reason smashes the top of a bottle of wine open to pour a glass is so fucking hilarious then the romana has this line if you wanted an omelet i'd expect you find a pile of broken crockery a cooker in flames and an unconscious chef listen i get results do you the Count's got the mona lisa yeah all seven of them you know what i don't understand i expect so there are seven potential buyers and exactly seven Mona Lisas. Yes. What, six of them, yet six of them have been sitting bricked up for centuries. What, buyers? No, Mona Lisas. <laughs> How did the Count know where they were? How do you know where to get them? Taxes the mind, doesn't it? It's just this... The dialogue is so
0: good. It's so fucking good. I love the, you know what I don't understand? I expect so. Romana is awesome in this yeah. story. She is so great. And yeah, pairing her with Duggan is really great. Because, you know, it's a it's a... Classic Doctor Who trope, and they do this in Modern Who sometimes too, where middle of the story, companion goes this way, Doctor goes this way. And I think sometimes that can be a crutch that where it's like there's been no chemistry for anyone because like right. you split the cast up too much. But if you do it the right way like this, where you put her with the guest star and, that, and you put Tom Baker with the villain, like they really know how to do that split very well. Yeah. yeah. And then, how does episode 3 end? Do you remember this um, cliffhanger for that one? I don't remember. Hold on. I can I
1: can find it here somewhere. Um, bu- 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 bum.
0: I should say also
1: before oh, it's the- it's uh, as the um Professor Korinsky is is killed oh, that trap a- him in the bubble
0: and yeah. then like age him to death. Yeah because it's not a traditional Like cliffhanger Like because we know What happened He's dead yeah. But it's just like It's ending on this Mic drop of a moment We forgot one moment In episode three That's great Is, is the doctor Takes all of the canvases That Leonardo's gonna use And right. writes This is a fake On all of them In sharpie And then leaves a note For Leonardo saying I had to leave a note On these Ignore it Paint over them They're fine Yeah
1: And I don't know If you caught this Because this is something I didn't notice uh, I think the first couple Of times I watched City of Death
0: The backwards writing Yeah is that
1: The, the writing isn't backwards And there's a mirror Right there And he is... checks it. Yeah, yeah, which is such a good little detail, because that was, for people who don't know, that was a secret, that was a thing that Da Vinci did, is like he would write backwards as like a secret code that you could yeah. only read it when you saw it in the mirror. Which was yep. a really nice little bit of attention to detail there. Yeah,
0: no, I love that. But I love, so episode four is basically this race against the clock, very literally, because... Uh, the the Scaroth, what's his name? Scaroth. Yeah. Scaroth has forced Romana, not even forced Romana, but convinced Romana to like build him this time stabilizer so he can execute his evil plot. And Romana doesn't seem to uh, grasp how bad the situation might be. Yeah, she hasn't put together that. Um,
1: Scaroth like left at the Like the dawn of life on Earth Which the Doctor has a really good line Way earlier in the story where he sort of Pieces together he's just like Oh that must have been that the before It's like it must have been a terrible time because No life to sort of pick things up Like no life and then just like leaves it there With like an ellipsis and so then we're kind of Like addressing that again now So the Doctor has clearly already figured this out But hasn't told anybody that, that
0: the consequences of Scaroth going back yes but that means that, that this, this episode 4 is this wonderful race against the clock where the doctor has come back to Paris and he's trying to get there on time so you have a bunch of great scenes of Tom Baker running through the streets of Paris it's yeah. almost like the end of a romantic comedy yeah, or something it's like he keeps on trying to flag a taxi but he can't yeah. get one to stop for him uh, and yeah. there's a really great scene where he's trying to find them And he's 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 describing Romana and Duggan And he says One was a, a pretty young lady And one was a young man Fair hair Always hitting people yeah. And it's, it's so funny <laughs> It's a good description of Duggan Yep And then uh, they get there And uh, we get the full reveal of what the the villain's plan is Which is quite villainous Yes To yeah. reverse the course of human history And also ties into like I love when Doctor Who Sometimes just swings For the fences And is like We're going to establish How life on Earth began Which is what they do here In the final scenes Where we learn that like It was the uh, Like the blowing up Of Scarleth's ship that actually like kick-started the development of evolution on right, planet yeah. earth it
1: provided like the necessary energy to like to
0: start fusing together amino acids and yeah. stuff yeah like that kind of thing doesn't work for me if you take it seriously but because this episode is so silly and funny oh it works great yeah and it's just it's a good
1: it's a really good plot like it's a very doctor who plot and i know it's a very doctor who plot because a big part of the plot is something that Fuck Stephen Moffat Totally stole for season 6 Which is the idea That Skyroth Has been secretly Pushing the course Of human history And human development So that he could um, You know Build this time machine At some point In the future Which is exactly What the thing About the silence is In the possible astronaut um, And the moon And day of the moon Or whatever the fuck It's called Um, That like They have been secretly Working in the background To And like Influencing humans To build the technology They need To do the shit That they want to do To make River Song And so it's it's the same sort
0: of basic idea. I never understood that about that two parter because it's gibberish. Yeah. But um, this one is not gibberish. So we also like once uh, Scarth activates like the machine and he's gone. The doctor knows okay he's going to be in time back in time for like one minute. So if we can get to the TARDIS, we can get back there and we can stop him. And so it's another race against the clock. They're running to uh to get to back to the Louvre where the TARDIS is. And this is where we get. One of the great moments in TV history Yeah The the cameo from Mr. John Cleese himself Yes, John Cleese and then
1: um, uh, What's the name of the, the other one? Eleanor Braun yeah, Eleanor Braun, who is another um, actress and comedian of the yeah. time But yeah, so like John Cleese and Douglas Adams were friends And so Douglas Adams managed to convince John Cleese To, without publicizing it Without, you know, like having it be a thing um, Just for the fun of the, the episode And for like a surprise for the viewers Um... Yeah, John Cleese is there as this art critic, he and Eleanor Braun. Um, and they're just here with this like one short scene. They each have um, two lines of dialogue. So good. And they're very good. Of uh, John Cleese says, to me, one of the most curious things about this piece is this wonderful functionalism. Yes, I see what you mean. Divorced from its function and seen purely as a piece of art. Its structure of line and color is curiously counterpointed by the redundant vestiges of its function. And since it has no call to be here, the art lies in the fact that it is here. And then the doctor and Romana and Duggan run inside the TARDIS, uh, dematerializes, and Eleanor just says, Exquisite.
0: Absolutely Exquisite. (laughs) Douglas Adams was so good at, like, sending up high culture. You know what that moment reminds me of? Is the scene in Hitchhiker's Guide, and this is one in every single version of Hitchhiker's Guide, where they're forced to listen to Vogon poetry, and then Arthur and Ford have to, like, review the Vogon poetry. yes. And it's so much like that, of, like, uh, it reveals the interior humanity, Vogonity, Vogonity of the author. (laughs) It's just all of that. Like, it's very similar to that moment. But with John fucking Cleese... And I just looked it up. So Monty Python's Flying Circus would have been over for about five years. Yeah. But Faulty Towers was in its last season. So like... John Cleese was a big deal. Yes, at this yeah, moment. he was. He was. He was John Cleese at yeah, this yeah. point for sure. Yeah. So, like, I love that. And, and you're right. Like, if you had tried to get him as like John Cleese, a major guest star, it would never have worked. Yeah. But as just a one-off secret cameo, how cool must that have been for people in England at the time when this yeah. aired? Because they, there's no way they publicized that. Right.
1: Yeah. If you don't have like the internet culture that we have now, that that would have been spoiled like two years
0: before they even had the idea to do it. Right. Yeah. No, it's great. And then you get the the climax on prehistoric earth. Just awesome yeah. and I love all of it. Yeah, it's...
1: Duggan throws the most important punch in human history He just <laughs> punches at like it's such a good climax. And a it's... payoff to that character. Exactly, yeah. That that it's it's the best punchline in the whole episode because it's been set up yep. properly the whole time that Duggan is constantly punching people out, and then finally it comes
0: useful at the very end of the episode. That was the most important punch that's in human, human history. His... Yeah. Oh, that's great. But My favorite scene has not come yet Sean Okay yeah And that is the last scene They're back on the Eiffel Tower They're saying their goodbyes And we get easily my favorite lines of dialogue In all of Doctor Who I just have to go through these Which is Duggan finally asks like Where are you people from? And the Doctor responds From? Well I suppose the best way to find out Where you've come from Is to find out where you're going And then work backwards (laughs) Backwards. Well where are you going? I don't don't know. know Nor do I and then a long pause, and then the fourth doctor goes, Goodbye. And they leave. Oh they, my God. But they leave, and then Tom Baker starts laughing as they're
1: leaving. <laughs> And it's so fucking funny because also the other thing is because Tom Baker's just insane. When he's going through that whole thing of saying like throwing out where you've come from is find out where you're going and then work backwards is that all the time he's just pointing in completely different directions that have nothing to do. That's it. not like he's pointing forward and then pointing backwards. He like I, points to the side and like points up. It's
0: like <laughs> what? I just can't imagine a more perfect blend of dialogue dialogue. Actor and direction (laughs) Uh I died laughing at that so hard Sean I had to pause the episode Rewind, watch it again, laugh And then finally finish it And like I, I watched like three times to write it all down Because it's so good And just like Tom Baker relishes it So much And that's what I mean by like douglas adams words have to be performed yeah and he performs them so beautifully and lala words contribution to that too yeah. perfect nor like she just plays along with it she yeah. knows like okay he's fucking with this guy let's do it together yeah and then the pause goodbye yeah. <laughs> it's so <laughs> good and that's <laughs> it that is city of death if you've never seen it one of the best tv things i've ever seen yeah. oh it's my really god funny. sean
1: it's fucking hilarious um, a couple of other sort of like moments and lines of dialogue I wanted to key in on is going back to that idea of like they keep on touching this on this idea of like the purpose and function of art and then, yeah. like the the count see is like stealing the Mona Lisa and forcing like duplicate Mona Lisa's to be um, drawn up for just like purely for money and so he and the countess like see it purely as this thing to serve this like 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 barefaced function. Uh, for the countess, it's mostly like status and money. And for the count in the, in Scottoth, it's so that he can you know accomplish this achievement that would ultimately just result in the erasure of all of that art, anyways. And and then for Duggan, it's just a job. It is he doesn't give a shit. Like it's like fucking whatever. It's art. I don't care. Like I've just been like I'm not in this for the art. I'm in this so that I can thump people. Basically, is his whole philosophy in life. And the doctor is the only person that the whole time is like, no, like this is really important stuff. And that, that before we have the like brilliant sort of sign off by the doctor as he leaves, you have a great exchange, um, where the doctor and Duggan are talking about how the doctor has, um, they, because the the chateau burned down that has all the Mona Lisas, the real one and the the six fake ones in it, and the doctor managed to only save one of them. And so Doug says, the one nearest the wall, mm, it's the only one that wasn't damaged in the fire. But it's a fake. You can't hang a fake Mona Lisa in the Louvre. And then Romano says, how can it be a fake if Leonardo painted it? With the words, this is a fake written under the paintwork in felt tip. It doesn't affect what it looks like. It doesn't matter what it looks like,
0: doesn't it? Well, some people would say that's the whole point of painting and i love that whole exchange it's also i love the status quo at the end of this is there's now a mona lisa hanging in the louvre with the doctor sharpie this is a fake under it such a like hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy kind of thing to do yeah it's brilliant and then then duggan says but they'll find out they'll
1: x-ray it the doctor says serves them right if they have to x-ray it to find out whether it's good or not they might as well have painting by computer and and that's Great, just full circle. Yeah, it, it comes full circle of that like like the value of the art is not like the this weird sort of like status in money and money and that stuff. It is the art is valuable because it is the art, right? Yeah. And 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 then I, there's a nice touching moment where then Duggan um like goes and buys a postcard that has a picture of the Mona Lisa on it, and that's sort of the note we leave off uh, for the at the
0: end of the episode. Yeah, I. Of the five we've talked about in this series, uh, my favorite before this was probably the Aztecs still, um, but I would put this above that. I think this is my favorite of the ones we've talked about here. Maybe my favorite classic who I've seen overall, you know, other ones like we haven't done in this series, like the Time Warrior or Caves of Andrazani, you know, a lot of those are high as well, but like this, this one is superb. Yeah. So... Any other final thoughts Sean?
1: Um like let's talk a little bit about Tom Baker again. just because we we, okay. we didn't because we talked about him obviously a lot um last time but like we didn't talk about him that much because we talked about him last time
0: and just he's so fucking good. He's so as fu- the doctor. You know, I'm very close to being done with my third doctor rewatch. I'm on the penultimate third doctor story, but I am so not by any fault of the third doctor era. It's just that the fourth doctor era is sitting here like Haunting me Yeah And it's just I want to get to it And no he's amazing here And I love how Fucking silly He gets to be He is such a Funny doctor And he gets to show That in dark stories As well Like he is profoundly Funny in the brain Of Morbius Which is not a silly story Yeah It's a very dark Episode of Doctor Who But like this one Just like I think Letting him do Kind of high comedy Like this He's incredible He's so Alien but recognizable All at the same time He just He is the you know, even though I've only seen a couple of his stories, he is the Ur Doctor. Like, right. he is all of them in one, and he's amazing.
1: Yeah, and, and the other thing with this story is that I think, because it, the humor is so funny, it also highlights, I think, how good he is at the serious side of the Doctor as well, because yeah. there's some really brilliant... Um, like really serious dialogue and and i think maybe the best scene to highlight that is again like thinking about like contrasts or kind of coming full circle stuff of that at the beginning of part two you have that really funny scene in the drawing room at the chateau where he's you know, like i love you butler how violent your butler is all that stuff and then near the end of the story he comes when he comes back into the chateau and then meets the countess there and this is where he has oh, this great conversation scene. yeah with the countess sort of like playing his hand of like he's not human Um, I'm just going to read this dialogue... Because I think it's just this brilliant fucking exchange... And and highlights... um, Both like Douglas Adams could write this really sharp serious dialogue... That's like very fucking British... Um, But then when you watch the episode... Tom Baker brings so much to these lines... How long have you been married to the Count? Long enough? Long enough. I like that. Discretion and charm. So civilized. So terribly unhelpful. Discretion and charm. I couldn't live without it... Especially in matters concerning the Count. There's such a thing as discretion... There's also such a thing as willful blindness. Blind? I help him to steal the Mona Lisa, the greatest crime in the century, and you call me blind? Yes. You see the Count as a master criminal, an art dealer, an insanely wealthy man, and you'd like to see yourself as his consort. But what's he doing in the cellar? Tinkering. Every man must have his hobby. Man? Are you sure of that? A man with one eye and green skin, eh? Ransacking the art treasures of history to help him make a machine to reunite him with his people, the Jaggeroth, and you didn't notice
0: anything? how discreet how charming that scene and then this the sister follow-up scene where she confronts uh, Skerath and and shoots at him and all that those two scenes are definitely the dramatic highlight of the serial like most of it is in the kind of sillier vein no those two scenes are I'm glad you mentioned those because they're great and yes his performance there is it sends chills down your spine it's so good
1: yeah because it's just this moment where he totally like lets the veil down and is like serious and is like And you get the sense of, like, it's something that he does every now and then, and I think, like, Brandon Morbius doesn't sort of highlight it as much as other stories, as much as this one does, is that, like, at the end of the day, like, the Doctor is a serious character, like, it's not a comic performance, like, it can be very, very funny, but it has to have this very serious core once, like, that stuff has been shed off. And like, this scene is, I think, one of the best examples of Tom Baker shedding that and just being totally on the level with a character. Because he's not performing for anyone yeah. in that moment. And he's like trying to help her in his own way. Like, he's both like, judging her, but then also trying to pull her out and be like, you have to see this guy for what he is. Like, yeah. You still have this
0: chance. All right. Well, we need to wrap this up because yeah. this one's going long. Uh, so, Sean, City of Death is great. Next month, after our two months in Fourth Doctor land, we are moving on to the Fifth Doctor. Yes. And I'm really curious what you're going to pick, because where we could do Caves of Androzani, we're not doing that one, right? No, because that
1: would, not be, that would not be representative in so many ways of the Fifth Doctor run, and we already talked about that forever ago on the Monthly 10. Maybe, hopefully, we'll talk about it again at some point, because uh, Caves of Androzani is one well worth revisiting, but no. Um, the Fifth Doctor was one I had a very, very hard time trying to figure out what I wanted to pick, because I think a lot of his most notable episodes, like the Caves of Androzani, or Earthshock are not ones that are great for, like, this kind of more out-of-context one. Earthshock being the one where Adric is killed, and so it feels like... Spoiler! Yeah, yeah, This feels like, what's the point of showing the episode where Adric is killed at the end if we haven't seen Adric yet? Um, So what I ultimately came down to is that I... And I think this is a really good choice because I watched a couple of um, Fifth Doctor ones, and it came down to this one and Enlightenment, and ultimately I went with Kinda. As our fifth Doctor story from his first season. So we are taking our first steps into the John Nathan Turner era of Classic Doctor Who. Which we will be in for the remainder of Classic Doctor Who. Because he was the producer for the whole time. And we will talk about the weird, the weird world of Doctor Who in the 80s. Which is the, the decade we are now plunging headfirst into. Next time on Classic Doctor Who.